This talk was given by Linda Shinji Hoffman at the Zen Center of New York City. Shinji is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. I'd like to thank Hojin Sensei, Abbot, Fire Lotus Temple, for asking me to give this talk. And I'd like to also express gratitude to my teacher, Shugen Roshi. I'm going to start with a quotation from a book written a hundred years ago, The Apple Tree by Liberty Hyde Bailey. The apple tree starts life fresh and vigorous. It grows rapidly. The shoots are long and straight. The wood is smooth and fair and supple. But in time, the difficulties come. The tree probably slows down it becomes too thick with branches. The land is not tilled. It is not manured. Insects and fungi make headway. The tree becomes broken, diseased, gnarly, unshapely. A little like where we are today in America. America is an unshapely tree, overgrown, insect-ridden, and diseased. How do we prune such a tree? How do we begin when the situation often seems so overgrown and unwieldy and unmanageable? We can no longer even see the trunk, the central leader, the most important part of the tree. We have work to do. I just want to make sure, can you all hear me in the back? Okay. In the early 1900s, William John Anderson, in order to be his own boss, planted and orchard. He eventually owned and cared for 3,500 trees near Lake Champlain in Vermont. He became the most highly respected orchardist in the state. He was president of the Vermont Horticultural Society, and he served as a state rep in Vermont's legislature. William John Anderson's father was a 17-year-old black man enslaved in the South who found refuge in the 11th Vermont Infantry during the Civil War. And after the war, Anderson's father went back to Vermont, not went back, went to Vermont with one of the soldiers and he met 
his, the woman who became his wife, a French-Canadian, who was part Native American, and they started a farm where they and their two children were the only people of color. I bring him up because on this day, June 19th, we celebrate the national holiday, Juneteenth. And we remember that on June 19th, 1865, a Union general arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform enslaved African Americans of their freedom. The Civil War was over, and the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been signed two and a half years earlier by President Lincoln, was law. Freedom, equality, and justice was the promise. But we all know this promise was broken, smashed, disregarded, stamped on and forgotten uncountable times by white people. I take responsibility because I identify as a white woman who has benefited innumerable times from my whiteness. And I am grateful to have the opportunity to work, to heal the karma of slavery created by so much aggression and ignorance. How do we heal and atone for the wrongs? What are our tools? The great poet Langston Hughes begins his famous poem, Freedom, with these words. Freedom will not come today, this year, nor ever, through compromise and fear. I have as much right as the other fellow has to stand on my two feet and own land. Malcolm X said, revolution is based on land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. So this, there is this importance of land. A person who is free needs a place to live, an opportunity to set down roots, and community. We don't all have land, but we need a place to call home, a place where we are at ease, where we are safe, and have community. A place like this temple, an oasis, of support. Though the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and there were promises of land, these promises were not kept. And many of the women and men who were freed had no choice but to become sharecroppers and work for those who had enslaved them. William John Anderson was fortunate because he and his family owned land. 
I identify with this healing power of land. In particular, we both share the healing that comes from caring for an orchard. I moved to a rundown farm with an abandoned apple orchard when I no longer could stay with my husband, the father of my three children, and bringing an abandoned orchard to health became my lifeline. I was going to bring it back and do it organically, even though I had no idea what that really entailed. But I learned, and I had to learn a lot about how we mistreat the earth and ourselves. And I learned there really is no difference between those two. So what can we do to heal the wounds of this country? First, we bear witness. We always remember. Right now in this temple, we are on land once owned by the Lenape people on land that was stolen from them. We remember and we atone with our renewal vows ceremonies that take place throughout the year. We acknowledge the harm that we have caused. We also, as Buddhists, repeat our vows every day. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. What would the Buddha say? The Buddha taught in many simple concepts, ordinary, everyday notions. The path of awakening is not taking ourselves to some rarefied place and doing some esoteric practice and becoming different than we are. It's living our lives, appreciating our lives and the lives of all other sentient beings. It is relating, always relating to others. It's grieving for losses and celebrating successes. It's the work we do every day. Planting a tree is easy, but the work that follows makes the difference. Will our tree become unshapely, gnarly, unhappy, angry, and unproductive, or beautiful, vibrant, and giving of fruit? If we just walk away, the tree will die. The proclamation of emancipation was signed, and then we abandoned it. It was not remembered, cultivated, and practiced. Pruning is the orchardist's most important work. It's done every year in winter when the tree is dormant. Pruning is caretaking, loving, clearing, decluttering. We prune and the tree will have more direction, 
more focus on what's most important for it to do, which is to offer a healthy crop of fruit. And we can do the same for this world. I think we could consider the spiritual path as one great pruning. So how does pruning a tree actually, though, relate to Dharma practice? The Buddha Buddha did not teach about pruning. But he taught us the seven factors of awakening, tools for us on the path of restoring ourselves and putting an end to suffering and the suffering of others. He said in the Satipatthana Sutra, I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. What is, I've seen is that these seven factors can help us, whether it's pruning an overgrown tree or working for freedom, justice, and equality, or caring for our children, or our parents, or our friends, or the earth. So we're going to prune this old abandoned apple tree with the seven factors of awakening. And in doing so, reflect on the tools that we each have to go about that bigger job the pruning of the gnarly, diseased tree that is America. The first factor is mindfulness. So we need to keep our goal in mind. The Buddha said, mindfulness is keeping something in mind. We have to keep in mind our intention. For the tree, it's to be healthy and productive. For our communities, it's to be part of creating a healthy and peaceful community. And we know what happens locally ripples out. And what we do in our small world, in our neighborhood, with our friends, can go out and go out further to the country. We have to believe that it is possible. We have to have faith, even when we are just overwhelmed. But we remember and we keep in mind our vows and the pure precepts to do good, to actualize good for others. But we have to do more than just be mindful. The second factor is we have to investigate We have to discern. So with our gnarly and unshapely tree, it is a mess. We can't see the trunk. So we have to begin very slowly. And we circle the tree low down where we can reach and just remove little branches growing towards the center and crossing. We end up with little windows so we can start to see Just like in Zazen, as we start with thousands of thoughts that just keep like leaves of the trees coming and 
appearing and waving, and then slowly they begin to settle down and clear. And you have little spaces of calm. The Buddha always instructs us to give careful attention to the wholesome and unwholesome thoughts and states that arise. We need to discern what we might need to encourage in our life and what we might need to prune away. So when I go out, I always look for in pruning to see that central leader, that main trunk that's growing up. And sometimes it's leaning, and sometimes it's forked, and, but it's the direction, the most important direction for our tree. Just like in our life, we do have that main trunk that is most important. And sometimes there can be another branch coming off it, like a really healthy, beautiful big branch. But you can't have that in an apple tree because that other branch is going to take away too many of the nutrients from what's most important, and we have to prune it away. And sometimes that's really hard to do. It's hard to do in a tree, and it's hard to do in our life. So an example of that in my life was was leaving my marriage, something like that, that there was no way that if I stayed, I could become who I needed to become. And so we have to remember, sometimes we have to really discern what is most important. And sometimes we have to prune away what is not serving us. It is a hard lesson to, to learn, but we can do this work. We bring wisdom to our practice through our investigation, what is making me suffer, for example, in this moment, or what is that feeling of fear that arose? Like we, we need to be curious, right? What is really coming up in me, and where is it coming from? Because if it arises, it influences our life. But all this can feel very overwhelming. You know, that big tree and this whole big project. Tree's a mess. I'm a mess. But we call to attention our determination to prune wisely And we bring the third factor, which is energy or effort. So I'm sure some of you remember the admonishment to practice like your hair is on fire or the house is on fire. And in the evening, gata, life swiftly travels by. We need to bring energy. Energy is the third factor And it's also one of the factors in the Eightfold Path 
and it's one of the six paramitas. So the Buddha really thought energy was very important. Energy is the effort that we make. And we have to learn how to cultivate effort in our practice. What do we do when we're feeling kind of cut off from it? We don't have it to bring. Sometimes when I don't, I will, I'll think about if I can move into that place of offering something, even very little, to someone else. I stop thinking about myself, and that little shift changes. Or when I'm feeling just like a victim, and like I have to do everything, and I don't have any help, and just overwhelmed. If I can make that little shift and think of, oh, but I could ask someone, or actually in my life, there are people helping me. And if I can remember that, suddenly I can shift almost 180 degrees. Because it's not, it's all in my head, right? Whether I think I can't do this, I'm overwhelmed, I'm all alone, or if I think it's okay, I can actually do this. And there are people here that I can ask for help and people that are helping me right now. You know, it does take time. And on like our tree, it takes going after all these little branches. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to prune you down, lop off the top half. Like in our zazen, you know, we sit down, we think, ah, this is it. I'm going to be enlightened. I'm going to just sit here. It doesn't work that way. We just have to see each thought and let it go. Twig by twig, thought by thought, inch by inch. So we're making, we're remembering our intention and we're investigating and we're bringing effort. And what is amazing is when you do those three things, you start to feel pleasure, some joy. And that's the fourth factor of awakening. It's not really intuitive but we actually start to feel better. We don't really talk about joy so much in Zazen, perhaps. But if you think of even just when you first sit down and you take a few deep breaths and kind of fill your body and the breath moves through your body, You can just be there with it. That is feeling, that is bringing some joy, some rapture into your body, into your world. So when you start to feel joy, the work that you're doing is actually transformed. It no longer feels absolutely impossible. And 
I'm no longer standing like outside of it, thinking about it and judging it, but I'm completely absorbed. And so in my tree, the branches are now piling up at my feet and the tree is looking lighter and all those branches that were hanging down are now up in the air and there's windows of light. I'm feeling pleasure. I'm not racing to get the work done. I'm not even thinking of getting it done, but it's happening. And then the fifth factor arises. Calm, calmness, tranquility. Tranquility comes from making that right kind of effort. We are calm when we actually follow through on our commitment and follow through on what we intend to do. And there's a lot of gratitude that shows up there. We've made space to allow ourselves to feel gratitude. Think about a time when you felt calm and safe and loved. It's really the best feeling. It's what we all deserve and can have and can offer. So we now become concentrated when we're in calmness. The sutra says, for one whose body is tranquil and who is happy, the mind is concentrated. Samadhi. Body and mind are unified. They're working together. We can become quite fearless then. We're in line aligned with our purpose and we have clarity. There are no longer thousands of little branches shading the tree, but sunlight can reach every branch and it can be productive and nourishing. We're in alignment with the Dharma. So there's a story that I, I want to share um, that gives an example of this. The Buddha, he was on his alms round. You know, he would go begging, he and his sangha, every day for food for the noonday meal, the only meal they ate. And he arrived at this town of Shravasti. And the houses were all locked up. The streets were empty. It was because there was a bandit on the loose. Angulimala was on a rampage. Someone asked the Buddha to like come inside, you know, and eat here. But he said to himself, no, I'm on my alms round and I will continue. And as he was walking, a voice called out, stop. Stop! The Buddha knew it was Angulimala, but he continued walking. The voice shouted again, 
monk, stop. But the Buddha kept walking. He knew what he was here to do. He was practicing his walking meditation with calm and stability. And when Angulimala finally caught up with him and he said, why didn't you stop? And the Buddha answered, I stopped long ago. It's you who hasn't stopped. And Gulimala was surprised. No one had ever talked to him like that. Explain yourself. And the Buddha did. He said, I stopped doing cruel and mean things to others a long time ago. He probably, you know, began to explain that everyone is suffering. Everyone is struggling. Everyone wants to be loved. And Angulimala listened. And then he said, but everyone hates me. They're trying to kill me now. And the Buddha admitted that there are cruel people, but there are also kind people. And he shared about the kindness of his monks and nuns and assured Angulimala that it wasn't too late. Angulimala was like, no, I, it's too late for me. But he said, no, it's not too late. And Angulimala asked if he could join the Sangha, and he did. So we can do amazing things when we're patient and calm and concentrated on the wholesome way we want to be in this world. And that is our practice. And then we arrive at the last factor, equanimity. The Buddha gave his son, Raula, when he was teaching him the example of equanimity, as be like the earth. People throw trash on it and bones on it and blood, and the earth just accepts everything. I like to think of a tree as a great symbol for equanimity because a tree can't move. It's rooted to its spot. Insects come, fungi come, brown rot and black rot, wind, hail, rain, and sun too, but not necessarily in the amounts that the tree needs but it can't get upset. Can we be a tree like that in the midst of the chaos of the world? Not trying to go anywhere? I love, there's a a pattern that a tree makes, a healing pattern, and it spirals in on itself. And the reason a tree does that is that when a tree is attacked by a fungus, the tree knows it and can't do anything to fight it. All it can do is the two 
celled layer between the wood and the bark changes and becomes like the Great Wall of China. And the tree has to say, okay, fungus, I give you all of me. But from that wall further, it grows healthy wood. And the inside just becomes this peaty mess and eventually rots away. And that's why you have a hollow in the inside of the tree. But everything else from that day forward is hard, solid, good wood. I just think that's brilliant. (laughs) So when we prune our life, you know, of course, we have to pick and choose. We can't do everything. And there's no right way to prune because we're each unique human beings with our own causes and conditions that created our obstacles and our challenges. Our country needs a massive pruning. We're fighting each other, killing each other, and not offering support to those who need it. It's so often us against them. How do we harmonize our way of being? How do we not give up and be willing to enter the chaos and prune and nourish? We bring these seven factors with us. Mindfulness, discernment, energy, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. We develop them and we use them, whether we go outside with loppers to prune or a pencil to write or a scalpel to perform a surgery. We recognize that the work is here every day in our family, and within our sangha, at work. That's what we've signed up for. That's this path, this wonderful path of being a bodhisattva, to use our life to awaken wisdom and compassion in ourselves and others. And we can do this. So once the pruning is complete, I have to gather up all the fallen branches and I build a large pyre because orchardists burn all the pruning so disease will not spread. And as the fire burns down, before the bits of charcoal turn completely to ash, I douse the flames so I can spread the biochar back under the trees to improve the soil. Everything transforms. Everything serves. And we can trust the process. We can help our country heal, 
It is hard work and it takes effort. And it takes identifying and removing old habits, pruning them out, and nourishing new directions for growth. So we have our tools. We have the seven factors of awakening that we can take into any conversation, any situation, and be more kind and more loving. We have to do this work. The gnarly tree that is America, we can't, we can't let it die, right? We aren't going to give up. We remember again and again our vows and our intention. We make decisions for courageous actions, new ways of being with others, always inspired by our vows to be generous and offer compassion to ourselves and to others. So I want to close with a short poem by Lucille Clifton. She was discovered first as a young poet by Langston Hughes. And she often wrote about her experiences as a woman, as a mother, and a lover, and a wife. But I discovered, this was long ago, when I was investigating the Ox Herding series. There's some pictures of it upstairs, and there's pictures, paintings, um, at the monastery. And the Ox Herding series, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a series that was made by a... 12th century Zen master in China to show his students the path that they were on. And they, he used an ox, the most important possession that you would have if you lived in China and were a farmer, because of course the ox is providing heat for your family and plows your field. And if you've lost it, you have to go find it. There's no choice. And there's 10 stages on the path. And the last one is when you return to the marketplace with gift-bestowing hands. And Lucille Clifton wrote poems for each of these stages. And so I'm going to just share the last one entering the city with bliss-bestowing hands. And she wrote, We have come to the gates of the city. The hands begin to move. I ask them only forgiveness, and they tremble as they rise. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.